It seems to me that the last time I spoke, we had special music, and I said then, and I'll say it now, we could just pack up and go home, <laughs> if I hadn't spent so much time preparing. Please turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6 and verse 8, please follow along as I read. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from from what was called the synagogue of freedmen, including Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit which he was, with which he was speaking. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. They put forward false witnesses who said, This man incessantly speaks against the holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that the Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, Are these things so? Let's pray before we study God's word this morning. Thank you, Father, for the chance to worship. We thank you for your word and the opportunity to study it this morning. Our prayer, Father, this morning is that we will see how this event, this life and death of Stephen fits in to the life and ministry of the early church. We pray, Father, that We will draw lessons from his life, his ministry, his death that we can apply to our lives today. Father, through it all, may you be glorified. We pray this in the name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Before we look at the text, we need to decide or determine why Luke included this um, intriguing story in the Acts account. I don't think he did it to inspire us to give us a a picture of the first Christian martyr. Uh, This story is an intricate part of the flow of Acts. In fact, I would submit that it's a pivotal event in the life of the early church. You'll recall in Acts 1.8, Jesus said to his disciples, you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And this event, life and death and Stephen, is the, the means by which God scatters the church. The church has been in existence for some years now, from its birth in Acts 2 until these events. It's growing. It's doing good things. But it's still in Jerusalem. <laughs> And Stephen will be the trigger that shoots the church into the world. Also, 
the life and death of Stephen is the bridge between the ministry of Peter and the ministry of Paul. Oh, Peter will still be around and we'll hear from him, but Paul will become prominent in the life and ministry of the early church. Notice how Luke begins. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing signs and wonders. The word full is an interesting word. It means to fill up or be filled up. It, it, it was used to describe things that were controlled. People in the Bible are, are said to be full of rage, full of anger, full of compassion. That means that they are controlled or dominated by that emotion at that time. Stephen was a man of good repute, of good reputation. As Todd pointed out last week, he's also controlled by the Spirit and by wisdom, by grace, or by faith. And this week, we have the issue of being controlled by grace and by power. Remember when Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, he was talking about their walk, and he said, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the idea here. Stephen was controlled by the Spirit. He was controlled by wisdom, by faith, by grace, by power, and all those things were evident in his life. And out of that fullness of power, he performed great signs and great wonders. It's interesting that Stephen was chosen as a humble servant, a deacon to minister to the widows. But here he's described almost as an apostle because up until this point, only apostles had performed signs and wonders. What I want want you to understand is Stephen is more than a martyr in the church. He is a humble servant in his short life. He is a, a leader. And he is about to become a courageous witness to those in his community. The text tells us that some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, and it describes where these folks were from. There were a number of Greek-speaking Jews in Jerusalem. They were part of a heritage uh, that had been taken by Roman rulers, Roman uh, uh, armies and taken back to Rome and to other parts of Roman provinces to rebuild Rome, to, to build up the Roman Empire as slaves and as servants. After a period of time, they had been set free, and some of them had stayed where they had been taken, but others migrated back to Jerusalem. When they got back to Jerusalem, they became involved in the synagogue, and one of those synagogues was named the synagogue of the freedmen. Now, a synagogue was, uh, the word means simply a gathering place. It was a place where Jews gathered to, uh, to study the scriptures, to worship, to have fellowship. And these Greek-speaking Jews, who were known as Hellenized Jews because of the Greek influence in their lives, got together in their own little synagogue. Historians tell us that there were upwards of 400 synagogues in and around Jerusalem at this time, like a synagogue on every corner. (laughs) And folks gathered at a synagogue where they were comfortable. 
This synagogue attracted Greek-speaking, Greek-influenced Jews, the synagogue of the freedmen. They came from all sorts of different places, from North Africa, from Asia, from the province of Cilicia in what is now Turkey. And there was a city in the province of Cilicia named Tarshish. Does that name sound familiar to you? The home of Saul, who would become Paul, an important person in the life of the church as you study the book of Acts. But one of these Hellenized Jews was a young man named Stephen. He had understood all of the prophecies of the Old Testament about the Messiah, believed that they pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ. He trusted Christ as his Savior. He became a believer, a follower of Jesus. He went back to his synagogue, the synagogue of the freedmen, with the good news to share the gospel with those who were closest to him, those who he cared about. The message was the Messiah has come. He has died for the sins of the world. He has fulfilled the law, the gospel. Jesus became the perfect sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice, and fulfilled the law. There's no longer any need, guys, to go back to the temple to worship and to sacrifice. Now, you need to know that these folks, both Hebraic Jews and Hellenistic Jews, (laughs) were fiercely loyal to the land, to Jerusalem, to the temple, to the law. They didn't like what they heard. The text tells us. But they, but they, they rose up and argued with Stephen. The word argue means to, be, to debate. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. They secretly induced men, they paid them to speak blasphemous words, to say that he spoke against Moses and against God. I find it interesting that they mentioned Moses first and not God first. Just a thought. He was a blasphemer. They paid men to come and to accuse him. Mustered up the people. And they took him and brought him to the Sanhedrin, to the council. And there they brought false witnesses forward, and they said, this man incessantly speaks against the holy place and the law. They were talking trash, by the way. Just interesting. This man didn't even say his name. He incessantly speaks. We can't shut the guy up. And then in verse 14, he talks about the Nazarene. That's a slam. You know, Nazareth, that backwater country place where Jesus came from, not urban Jerusalem. Huh. He brought forward false witnesses. This man incessantly speaks against, generally, the holy place and the law. And then they get specific. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place, the temple, and alter the customs which Moses handed down. Now, it's not so much that these guys were outright liars. They just twisted the truth, twisted their story to their benefit. 
they made it sound like what Jesus said and taught, what Stephen said and taught, was revolutionary, was terroristic, (laughs) trying to tear down the temple, destroy the temple. It was blasphemy. Let's be clear. Jesus, on several occasions, did talk about the destruction of the temple. Some of those instances, he was speaking prophetically. Because some years down the road, we know history tells us that Titus, the Roman general, came in 70 AD. He sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple and scattered the Jews from that land. When he talked about destroying the temple, he never said he would do it. In fact, in John chapter 2, he said, destroy this temple. It's a command, destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. Remember how they responded? Hey, it took 46 years to build this thing. You're going to raise it up in three days? And John points out he was talking about himself. That's it, isn't it? You see, Stephen came with a message that Jesus came and died on the cross as the ultimate sacrifice for sin. He paid the final penalty. There is no more need for you to go to the temple and to sacrifice continuously. What Paul talks about in Colossians, and the writer of Hebrews talks about in his book, the shadow has been replaced by the substance, Jesus Christ. That was Stephen's message, but they perverted it. (laughs) He wants to destroy the temple. He wants to destroy our customs. And then Luke adds an interesting picture in verse 15. Fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. I, I don't know what's going on there. There are some who suggest that maybe Stephen's face was like Moses' face when he came down from a meeting with God on Mount Sinai and his face was glowing. I, I don't know. I, I'm a pretty simple guy. I think it must, it's much more simple than that. You say that word angel can also be translated messenger in the Scripture. And I think what they saw, what they observed was God's mailman, God's messenger, bringing his message with peace and confidence. And it blew him away. And the high priest Caiaphas asks, are these things so? Are these accusations that they made against you, are they true? I I don't know about you, but I love a good courtroom drama. One of my favorite books is Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird. The movie was fantastic. Gregory Peck as Atticus Finch. There's that long-running TV show, Law and Order. And then you can't talk about courtroom dramas without talking about a few good men. We just want the truth. We just want the truth. You can't handle the truth. I was thinking, this is what Stephen is going to say in his little message. You can't handle the truth. 
Because in my mind, this is one of the greatest courtroom dramas in all of history. Here is Stephen standing before the Sanhedrin, 71 guys in a semicircle, and he's standing in the middle, but I'm telling you, he's not intimidated. He's not in any way intimidated. This is the longest message in the book of Acts, and I think that's why Luke includes it. It's important. Stephen stands before the Sanhedrin and speaks to them. Speaks to them about their history. He speaks to them about their activities, the way they acted to the prophets. And he uses their history as an indictment against them. His goal in all of this is to recount history selectively in order to vindicate the gospel, to vindicate the church, to vindicate Christianity. Now, two things. Time does not allow for us to walk through this long message this morning. But what I want to do is lift for you the three points, the three themes, the three ideas that Stephen is making in order to indict these guys as to their failure to understand their own history and to see Jesus as Messiah. I also want you to know that there are some historical problems in Stephen's speech This causes liberal critics of the scriptures to salivate. We got you. He made some mistakes. You can't trust the Bible. All of the things that Stephen talks about are easily explained and understood. And as you study this later in maybe your family or your all group, or whatever it is, and I hope you will, walk through this message verse by verse, and you encounter some of these issues, you'll take time to find the answers. A lot of good commentaries that give guidance about this speech of Stephen's. Let's look at it. Notice he begins, and he said, hear me, brethren and fathers. Did you find that interesting? Here is a man who is being totally disrespected. And yet, in front of this august tribunal, he refers to them as brothers, fathers, grace, and respect. He quotes from Psalm 29 about the glory of God. He begins by talking about Abraham. The first point that he is making in this message is that there is progress and change in God's program. God's program is not static. These guys had it in their mind. This is the way it's been. This is the way it is. This is the way it always will be. 
There is Israel, there is the temple, there is the law, there is no change. And so he begins by pointing out the history of the Jewish nation. He begins at the beginning with Abraham. And the fact that God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees or Mesopotamia, mentions in your text. He gave him some promises and gave him some direction. And by the time you get to the end of the story of Abraham, his family has grown and his grandsons are now the 12 patriarchs of the nation of Israel. The fact that things progress and change is evidenced in the life of Joseph, who is taken into Egypt. We know the story of Joseph and the fact that he rose to power and favor in Egypt and then his family followed him because there was a famine in the land. And now the nation of Israel, fledglingly as it is, is now in Egypt, not in Israel. Then he points to Moses, a major figure in Israel's history. He will be their deliverer from Egypt to where? To the wilderness. Not back to Israel, but the wilderness. And now the number of people is like the sand of the sea. It's grown from one person to a bunch. And then he will talk about the building of the tabernacle in the wilderness in chapter 7. Verse 44, and then the temple. The tabernacle implies something that's temporary. As we're going to talk about further in a moment, the temple was never seen as the permanent dwelling place of God. God never intended that. What Stephen is doing in this first idea or this first point is that if God changes things as he has throughout the history of the nation of Israel from Abraham to Solomon. Who's to think the temple is permanent? Who's to say that the law is permanent? Things change. And God has changed in sending his son, the Lord Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice for sin. These guys had in their minds that the only place a person could be blessed was in the land, worshiping in the temple. So Stephen points to the blessings of God outside of Israel. Israel's patriarchs, he points out, were blessed outside the land. Abraham was called and given promises. Come to a land. There God made a covenant with him, gave him a son. As you read those texts, Joseph, chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, got into Egypt, sold into slavery, but was blessed by God, was given favor by the Pharaoh, and rose to a place of prominence. Moses, Stephen says in his message in chapter 7, was commissioned by God. He was given two sons in the land. <laughs> Stephen also said that law that you love so much wasn't given in Israel. 
was given in the land, in the, outside the land. The tabernacle was built in the desert. Even the temple that you love so much is not God's dwelling place. He points that out in verse 49. What Stephen does is take a, a sledgehammer to this idea that God can only work in one place, that he's geographically limited. That worship and everything about God is somehow geographically, geographically limited to Israel, to the temple. In his message, he talks about the fact that God's plan and program progresses and it changes. It's not static. His second point is that God blesses in places outside of land. Outside of this temple. The third point is his major point. That is that Israel in its past always evidenced a pattern of opposition to God's plan and of his men. Joseph was God's man. What did his brother do? (laughs) Brothers do, they sold him into slavery. Let's get rid of the guy. Moses was rejected by Israel as you read this account. Israel rejected true worship by turning to idols, according to verse 39. Look at verse 39, if you will. Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, but repudiated him in their hearts and turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us a God who will go before us. For this Moses, who we do not know, what happened to him? That time they made a calf and brought a sacrifice to the idol. If you read on, you understand the Old Testament. One of the major issues, people of Israel, was their disobedience and their idolatry of being influenced by the nations around them. And because of that, were sent into captivity. They were disciplined by God. People missed the point of the temple in verses, chapter 7, verses 48 and 49. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands, as the prophets say. Heaven is my throne, the earth the footsteps of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for me to repose Was it not my hand which made all these things? (laughs) Even as said, Jesus has come. He's paid the ultimate sacrifice for sin. There's no need to go back to the temple to worship. They didn't buy it. Yet they didn't really understand temple worship. They would bring lame and sick animals. They would come with sinful hearts. Remember God saying, don't do that. I wish you would not even sacrifice. Then come with a heart of evil. If you look at chapter 7, the message of Stephen, those are his three points. What emerges from his message is that 
God's plan and God's work in, in the nation of Israel is progressive. It changes. It, it's not static. Secondly, God blesses and where he blesses. God is not locked into a certain place. And finally, you guys are just like your forefathers. You don't listen. Notice in verse 51, you men are stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart and ears and are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just what your fathers did. They didn't listen. They disobeyed. They killed the prophets. And you're no better. I want you to understand there is no altar call here. There is no call to repent, to change their minds. There is just an indictment of guilt from Stephen. You men, turns from the rebellion of Jewish leaders of the past to the current leaders hearing his message. They brought charges against him. But he brought more serious charges against them. It's like he poked his finger in their chest and said, you stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart and ear people. You're stubborn, self-willed, unfaithful, disloyal, untrusting, bun- untrustworthy bunch. In history, you killed the prophets, and now you've killed the righteous one. In verse 52, the righteous one whose betrayers or murderers you have now become. In verse 53, is so ironic. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. I'm telling you that Jesus came to fulfill the sacrificial system and the law And you're all bent out of shape. But you didn't even keep the law. All this made their heads explode. Blow! Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, cut to the heart. Painful wounds. They began gnashing their teeth at him. I want you to notice a contrast. Here are these leaders, political and religious leaders. They're pained at hearing these words. They're out of control. On the other hand, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, according to verse 55, gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God. He started his message by pointing to the glory of God. And now that message has come to conclusion and they're about to respond against him, he sees the glory of God. They are out of control. He is in complete control. 
I believe that Stephen died as he lived, to the glory of God. Will you notice, gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look down at the end of verse 56. And the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Oftentimes when you look at the scripture and there are visions of heaven, we see Jesus seated at that place of divine authority and power at the right hand of God. But here he's standing. Folks debate as to why he's standing. Again, I think the answer is simple. He's standing to receive Stephen, who will be the first Christian martyr of the church, into his presence. I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. That Son of Man is a messianic term. It comes from the prophet Daniel in chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, to talk about the universal rule of Messiah. Jesus used it of himself in the Gospels. In fact, he used it on several occasions before the same group on his way to the cross. Son of man, son of man. They understood the implications. The only other person in Scripture to use that term is Stephen. And you see, he's tying together the righteous one, the end of his message, Jesus and the Son of Man. They are one and the same. And trust me, these guys knew and understood the implications of what Stephen was saying. Peter had preached the message, Jesus died He was buried. He rose again for the sins of the people. Repent. Be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And again, Jesus died, was buried, rose again at the right hand of God. And now Stephen is echoing those same words in this vision. of Sanhedrin, all I can see is the ceiling. But he's seeing heaven. But they are repulsed by this. They killed a guy. He's supposed to be dead. And they rushed at him and they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. I always like it when I can find a word that helps me visualize things that were going on. That word rushed is an interesting word. It was the same word that was used <coughs> in Mark chapter 5. When Jesus cast the, de- the demon out of the man from the Gerizines, he-, he cast the demon into a bunch of pigs, and the pigs rushed to the cliff and into the sea. What a waste of bacon. <laughs> but that word rushed is the word that's used here. It's just a demonic mob. These are the leaders of Israel. They rushed, and they grabbed him, and they took him out of the city. Couldn't stone him in the city. That was verboten. So they took him out of the city to stone him. When they were driven out, they began stoning him. The witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. 
Saul who would become Paul. Saul who would become Paul. He went on stoning. He called the Lord and said, Lord, Jesus, receive my spirit. Similar to the words of Jesus. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Similar to the Lord. Having said this, he fell asleep. This is now three occasions when folks have come before the Sanhedrin. First, there was, don't say anything about this Jesus anymore. Now get out of our sight. Second, I'm going to beat you for that. Now it's escalating. Hmm. Someone dies. Jesus, uh, Stephen. A painful, painful, horrific death. Stoning. Luke simply said he fell asleep. There are a number of things that we can learn from the life and ministry of Stephen. For example, his passion to share the gospel with those who were part of his community, his fellow Greek-speaking Jews, his faithful witness in the face of strong opposition. He cared for his people. He knew there was going to be blowback. Yet he said, I must share what Jesus has done for me and will do for them. May his tribe increase. His understanding of the scripture is an example for us and his use of it. I hope you get a chance to read through chapter 7. It's filled with Old Testament scripture. Then there's the brief but also effective ministry. Stephen is like a brilliant shooting star that flashes across the dark sky and then is gone. The fact is that the landscape of the church is covered with the blood of men and women who have given their lives for the cause of Christ. Sometimes those outside the church and sometimes even in the church, they'll cluck their tongue and say, What a shame. What a waste. I disagree. I came across a sermon title in my preparation for this morning. I I wanted to grab it and use it for my own, but in good conscience I couldn't do that. But I wanted to share it with you. It captures this thought. The sermon title was this, Stephen, stoned but not wasted. (laughs) You got it. God doesn't waste anything or anyone. Tertullian was right when he said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And as we're going to see when Todd gets back to the book of Acts again, maybe after James, which he starts next week, by the way, is that the church scatters and things began to move out of Jerusalem to the uttermost parts of the earth. 
And if you read the, the biographies of martyrs, that's often the case. God will take their life, their death, and something good will come from it. I need to hurry. Mark said I could have 45 minutes. I have five left. He gave me 45, too. But I think there's one lesson that emerges from the life of Stephen that I really want us to take home with us this morning. I want you to put it in your pocket or purse and go out the door with it and and mull it over and think about it. Make it part of who you are. And that is this, that God can take any believer He can take you and make you adequate for the stresses and demands of life. God can take any believer and make them adequate to meet the demands and stresses of life. How is it possible that Stephen lived as he lived and died as he died? I think the answer is found in that little word, full. Full. He was controlled. His life was dominated by five things. He was full of the Holy Spirit. When you trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, you received the Spirit of God who indwells you. The decision you need to make is, will you allow him to control your life and to guide you and to lead you? Stephen did. He was full of the Holy Spirit. He was full of wisdom. Someone has said, if you want knowledge, go to college. If you want wisdom, go to God. In the Hebrew mind, the word wisdom had about the idea of skill for living, and that skill for living came from the Scriptures, and Stephen was a man of the Scriptures, full of wisdom, full of the understanding of the Scriptures. It's full of faith means a life of trust in a sovereign God of history that is evidenced by Stephen's short, selective history lesson in Acts chapter 7. He was full of grace. We're saved by grace. We live by grace. Here, I think the idea is that we have received this grace and we are to live out that grace toward others. Full of kindness and compassion Stephen, in all of this account, never got ruffled. He was respectful. He was quiet. He was confident. He was powerful. The last, he was full of power. Power has to do with the ability to, to serve, to live in the difficulties of life. Full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, full of faith, full of grace, full of power. What does Stephen say to us today? Simply that God can take any believer and make them adequate to meet the stresses and demands of life. He's given us all we need for life, for witness, for our walk. Father, thank you for the life of Stephen as recorded in Acts 7. Thank you for the chance we've had to study this section of the book of Acts as Chapters 1 through 7, and I pray, Father, that we, as we move on to the letter that James wrote that kind of correlates what's happening in the early church, that you'll teach us lessons there as well. 
Thank you, Father, for the chance to worship, to fellowship, to study. May, may we see that what was available to Stephen in his life and his ministry and ultimately his death, death is available for each of us. Spirit of God, wisdom, faith, grace, and power. Father, I pray that we will implement these things into our lives. In whatever we face, we will face it knowing that you care for us. You've equipped us. Thank you, Father, for your word. I pray, Father, that you'll guide us and direct us as we leave this place this morning. I pray all this for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.